Talk about grace and truth, because one of the great conflicts, maybe the greatest conflict, about grace in our life is where does truth fit in? Where does the law and where freedom uh, is contrasted? What about truth versus, hey, why don't you just let things go? Why don't you give some, some people some slack? And so back and forth we go, and uh, you know, I'm reminded of the fact that when I was growing up, one of the great fears of my life as an elementary school student was that I was going to have to deal with quicksand all my life. Now, you laugh at that. The last group at 930 didn't laugh at that at all. They said, yep, that's right, that's right. Now, some of you young people think you're going to have to deal with robots or, um, or, or some freakish thing like, you know, the uh, um, uh, zombies. Man, you're going to have to deal with zombies the rest of your life. You know, there's no question about it. Well, back when I was growing up, it was quicksand because every Tarzan movie on Saturday morning had quicksand in it, every single one of the movies. And they had to drop a vine you know, down and they had to get out. Or the Westerns, Bonanza. Out in the mid middle of the desert in Nevada, they would have all this quicksand. And Bonanza, Gunsmoke, all the old Westerns, you had this guy in quicksand. He was always up to his waist. He couldn't move because what happens if you move in quicksand? You go down further. The more you struggle, the further you go down. And so they would have, somebody would have to come along with a horse and a rope and throw, it into the, throw, throw you the rope, wrap it around the little horn of the saddle, and the horse would pull you out to safety. Same thing every time. So we grew up thinking that there was quicksand everywhere. I remember going to a kind of a swimming hole. It was part of a lake. And... Um, in this, we were, my sister, my older sister and I, she had a couple of friends with her, and I had a couple of friends. I was three years younger, and we would decide, hey, you know, here, here's a swimming hole. Let's just jump in. Just take our shoes and just jump in. It's a hot day. And one of the 10-year-old girls reaches down and feels of the sand. And she says, guys, I think this is quicksand. In North Georgia, and how I thought a 10-year-old was an expert on quicksand, I don't know. But I was seven, and so, therefore, what could, what could I say? And so, we didn't go swimming that day because we were afraid of quicksand. Well, you get in quicksand, what happens? You, you go down, and sometimes you have some of these movies, especially the Tarzan movies, they would just go down quickly, just right down. And, but most of the time, it was like thick mud, and they'd be up to their waist, again, only their waist, and they would be waiting, being very still, for someone to come along. Now, the problem uh, to us today in our society, and in every society, not just this one, is that we don't realize we're in the mud. We don't realize there's quicksand there. And if somebody tells us, you know, there's, you're in quicksand. No, this isn't quicksand. This is just cool mud. It's a hot day. I'm in the cool mud. It feels pretty good, and, I, and I'm okay. We don't think about the fact that we need a rope. Well, truth, the truth is, we're sort of in like a quicksand of, of sin in our life and going down further and further and further, and we need a rope of hope. We need the grace of God to pull us out. Now, some people wind up on the side of grace. Some people on the side of truth. Some people say, well, I'm on the side of grace, and sometimes they take it to extreme, that anything goes, don't worry about it, give some people some slack. On the other side, you've got truth, and sometimes that could end up in legalism. Well, you've done this, done this, done this, and so therefore, you know, uh, you know get, get out of our sight forever. And so you have both of these, but yet Jesus, 
about Jesus, at least, John wrote these words. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as we have seen him in his glory, glory as only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's a balance here. There's grace, but there's also truth. It's like a bird. He needs two wings. If he flies with one wing, he's going to be grounded. He needs two wings to fly. And so the Bible's telling us here, if we're going to fly, if we're going to receive Christ and then walk in Christ in the grace of God, we have to receive the truth. If we're going to live in the truth, then we also need to realize part of the truth is grace. Part of the truth of life is grace, and part of grace, which is God's undeserved favor, and so God's given you something you don't deserve, is the truth, and to understand the truth. As we open up this passage in Matthew chapter 21, some of you who are maybe here today and think grace is just all about, the, you know, you like the love of Jesus part, and you really don't like the other. I, I was reading on a website this, this week, uh, last couple of days, in fact, and looking at other churches in our general area to see if they were going to close down. This is back in a couple of days ago where we felt like the hurricane was going to hit on Saturday. And so, you know, we're thinking about the whole week. It's a stress thing. You know, when, when are we going to make this decision? And I looked on one website and I just happened to see right there on the front page, a couple of reviews of this church. Now, I'm not saying this is what this church, particular church is all about. It's not our church, but some other church. But I'm just saying this was just somebody's comment. So I really love this church because it never preaches on sin or judgment, but only the good stuff, all right? Well, you know, the problem is, how do you know it's all that good if you don't know the truth of the other side? It's knowing that you're in the quicksand that causes you to appreciate the rope. And so we're gonna be looking at this, and if, if you are here today, and, and you think, well, I just like the love side of Jesus. This is going to be hard for you to deal with, and so I'm going to help you this morning as we walk through this passage. Jesus is in the last week of his life, as we've said last week, and this Passion Week, these last seven days, Matthew devotes eight chapters to it out of 28. So this is important. This is where it's all come down to. And you remember the times in the scriptures where Jesus said, okay, I've healed you, don't tell anybody. Or you claim I'm the son of God, don't tell anybody that. Why? Because it would have conflicted with the Jewish leaders and really Rome as well. And they would have been pressured to do something about him and his time wasn't there. Now he confronts. Now he wants to put that kind of pressure on him. He rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey saying, I'm a I'm not a, uh, a coming king here. I'm a suffering servant that's going to take your place on the cross. And as he comes in, basically saying, look, crown me as king or kill me. He's putting it all on the line right here. And he, we see this in verse 12 as we look at three things this morning, the paradox of grace and truth, the product, and then the problem. Look with me in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all that and sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Well, he's already done this one time in John, I think chapter two, the beginning of his ministry. So now he comes back and he does it all over again. And what was this about? Well, in the temple, of course, you had the Holy of Holies where you know, really the Ark of the Covenant where God was represented there and God, God was there. And then you had the holy place 
where only the priests could go. Then you had the inner court, which only the Jews could go. And finally, the outer court where Jews and Gentiles could come. This outer court was about 25 acres. It was believed that Jesus basically did this in the outer court. And he comes in and he sees all these sacrifices going on. Nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, that's Passover. That's what it's all about. But what happened is that if you were a farmer, you brought maybe a sheep or a goat or a pigeon, whatever you could afford, and you would bring that to be sacrificed on the altar for your sins. The thing is, though, it had to be without blemish, which is true. Book of Leviticus tells us that. It has to be perfect, without blemish, the best of the crop, first fruits of the crops, and it had to be great, and so the priest had to give an okay for it. So the priest come along and say, that's okay, that one's not this. Well, it, it, come to, it came to the point where the priest would turn down all of them. Why? So they could sell you something right there. And a lot of times, people have to buy it there anyway. They didn't either own it or it was too far to come to bring the animals. Too far of trip for them and their kids. But in place of that, they turned down everything. And then they would overcharge for the animals. And so he says, you made it a den of rob- robbers because business now is more important to you than worship. And he overturned the temple, uh, temple and the tables. Looks like he was losing his temper. Looks like he was just all kinds of judgment and wrath going on. But even in the midst of this, look what's happened in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. By the way, this, is, this church is not the temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but yet this is a house of worship as well. And so there's a little overlap there. But he, he's even doing that, even giving grace in the time that he's also giving judgment. Verse 15, and when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, save us, son of David. They were indignant. Now, think about this for just a moment. He's healing people who haven't walked all their life. He's healing people that were blind from birth. And they were mad about it. And they said to them, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you not read? Because why? They were lining up on the side of extreme truth with no grace. Have you not read in the truth, the word of God? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, right outside of Jerusalem, and lodged there. So what was happening here? The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders saw all the miracles that Jesus was doing, not just then, but they'd been following him around, many of them. And they'd been seeing all the things that he had done. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. And yet they were attributing these works to Satan. And so there's no way this guy could be of God. Why? Because somehow he violates the truth and prophecy the way we think it needs to be interpreted in the Old Testament. But we find here, there's a paradox here, a twist. There's the temple, and then there's a healing going on at the same time. The bird is flying. There's one wing of truth, one wing of grace. Well, what is the truth? The truth is God loves you. That's part of the truth. The truth is that we're sinners and separated from God for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And so therefore, there's a reason. The truth is it's a reason for us needing to be rescued, for the vine to be dropped from the tree, for the rope to be thrown into the quicksand. The, the truth is that Jesus Christ had to die on the cross. The truth is he took our place on the cross. The truth is he was resurrected on the third day. All these things are true. But it's also true that we must receive him into our heart in order to be saved. All these things are true. 
Sometimes the truth hurts, and sometimes the truth really does help. But there's a balance here between the grace and the truth. You know, you've heard me give the illustration before about going up in the mountains around Gatlinburg and Tennessee and, and, and seeing many times there's no rails. Well, the truth is, there's a road there. The truth is, I'm, I'm in a car now, I'm going up the road. The truth is, there's no guardrails there. But the grace is, there's a road, but also there's paramedics maybe down at the, the, the bottom of the hill in case I go over, somebody's going to call one. Truth is like a guardrail. And, and the truth guards us from sin. But once we do, the grace of God then take, can take over if we want the grace of God in our life, like a paramedic coming along and doing the healing. So we look at this, and we see that there's a problem with this, because why? We think sometimes grace means I can do anything I want to do. I can live the way I want to do. I mean, doesn't the songs say I'm free, I'm free, I'm free to do whatever? No, it just says you're free. It doesn't say to do whatever. We need to realize something and getting back to the essence of salvation. The problem is not all the sins in our life. In fact, let me, let me just read you a passage here. It's not, probably not going to be on your screen. But in the Old Testament, around Mount Ebal, God pronounced some curses on the people if they don't obey God. Now, this is part of the truth. It says, curse be the man, to the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen, and sets it in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, amen. Cursed be the one who dishonors his father and his mother, and all the people said, amen. Cursed be the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people said, amen. Cursed be the one who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people say, will say, amen. Cursed be the one who perverts the justice and due to the sojourner, or the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people said, amen. All kinds of sexual sins are mentioned. He comes down to the point where he says, cursed be the one who strikes down his neighbor in secret. And all the people said, amen. Cursed be the one who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. All the people said, amen. But then here's the catch at the end. Cursed be the one who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people said, amen. Right there in the last, he says, let me name some specific stuff, but cursed be the one who just doesn't obey the Bible. Wow, that kind of takes in all of us. And so here's the problem. All these things it says in that last verse, not the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is I want to run my own life. That's, that's me. And so I come to the cross realizing I can't run my own life. I'm down, not in mud, I'm down in quicksand and things are getting worse and worse as I try to run my own life. I get lower and lower and lower. I'm still breathing, but I'm getting lower. And in order to come to Christ by the grace of God, what do I do? I put Christ on the throne of my life and I take myself off the throne of my life. For me to say, well, now I'm gonna go and do what I wanna do is, total, is the total antithesis of what salvation is all about. You don't do what you wanna do. I don't do what I wanna do. We do what God wants us to do. And that's how it sets us free. Free from the penalty of sin, free from the addiction of sin, free from the, the bothering of sin, the guilt of sin, in our life, we're free. We're set free with grace, but also the truth. Now, sometimes the problem is that we just don't recognize it. Politically correct, you know, whatever you want to call it, relativism, 
You know, all truth is, is true to you, whatever's true to you. You know, I've never heard a professor say that. Hey, it doesn't matter what answer you put down. All answers are basically the same. Man, I wish I, I could have made A's that way. I mean, I, but without the truth, without the truth of sin, there's no conviction to need grace in our life. We think we're just in a mud hole, and it's nice and cool, and everything's good, but we don't realize that there's a problem in our life. You say, well, I'd like this grace. How do you know if you have it? Well, in verse 18, it shows us the product of that grace. In the morning, he is returning to the city. He became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither immediately at once? How did this happen? Wow. Here's Jesus losing his temper again, right? I mean, after all, you have come across a fig tree, and just because he's hungry, he loses his temper. It looks like sin to me. But what he's doing here is teaching the disciples something that's very, very important, sacrificing the fig tree to do it. The fig tree, something was wrong. It was already diseased. It was already dying. How do we know that? Because it had leaves with no fruit. The fruit came before the leaves. So when you go to a fruit tree, you see the leaves, there's no fruit. Something is wrong with the tree to start with. And he's saying, you want to know what the grace of God is like in your life, you bear fruit. Fruit in the Bible is always a symbol of salvation, not greenery. Remember the story that we told back in Matthew 13 about the parable of the soils and some of the plants came up and had greenery all around it and then withered and died. And you say, oh, there's a person there that once had salvation, now they don't have it anymore. No, greenery is never the sign of salvation in the Bible. Fruit is. What kind of fruit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. When you have the grace of God in your life, when you've been saved, the grace of God has taken over your life. You're walking in grace. You're living by grace and truth. What does that mean? It means that you're going to be having love and joy and peace, long-suffering in your life. It also, fruit is also another Christian. So you're going to want to share the gospel and tell about the good news that's going on in your life, just like, you know, that could go on somebody else's life as well. And then you're going to have a relationship with God. Look with me in verse 21. Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, and you will only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up, thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now, this was a metaphor. This was just a figure of speech because Jesus didn't even do mountain-moving stuff like that. He didn't do uh, things that would be just showy. But he was bringing it to, to a point. He says, whatever you ask in prayer, you receive if you have faith. What does that mean? It means that if you pray about it and you believe that it all, it's already as good in your hand, already there, it shall be done. Now, I know there's other places in the Bible we could talk about prayer and, and, and the name of Jesus and the will of God and all that. But the point is this. Great things are going to happen in your life if you live with a balance of both truth and grace in your life. As we look at this, we finally look at the problem, the problem that we have because as he's doing this, he's speaking now to the Jewish leaders. In verses 23, through 27, they challenge him again. And Jesus meets the challenge. And he's talking to them. So now he begins to talk to them in two parables. And a parable, again, is a story, an illustration that makes one point, one major point. 
Look with me in verse 20, 33. In the interest of time, we're just going to be looking at this one in particular this morning. It says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and, and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. With a season for fruit near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another, and again, he sent another servant, more than the first, and, and they did the same to them. Now, this was not a story that would be bizarre uh, in their day. Many people had vineyards, and so uh, here's a guy that had money, and so he had enough money to buy a vineyard, and he turned it over to some tenants, sharecroppers, maybe out west, the western days, and you know, you would identify with that a little bit in history, sharecropper, they would, they would have the fruit, they would take part of it, they would give the rest of it to the owner, the rightful owner of the property. And so here he sends some servants, he says, go get the fruit, go get the money from it. And he, they come back, they don't come back, they're beaten, they're, they're killed. So he sends some more, more than the first, and they kill them all. And wow, why in the world would they do such a thing? A tenant, the parable is this, the tenant sees himself as an owner. He wants to own the property. Now, the vineyard here is the nation of Israel, and the tenants are the Jewish leaders. They wanted to see themselves not as the recipients of grace or even needing grace. They wanted to see themselves as owners. I want to own this vineyard. Here you are, Jesus, coming along and upsetting everything, not just the tables in the temple, but everybody's life. Everybody was following us. We were the, the people with the big robes, and we had, it, we had it made. And now you're coming in and challenging everything with all these miracles and great teachings, and your, your preaching's better than ours, and we don't like it. They were the tenants, and they wanted to own it. The servants are the prophets of the Old Testament. Jeremiah went before the Jewish people in Judah and was beaten. Uriah killed other prophets. The Bible says over and over again they were killed. They came with a message of sin. That's what a prophet did, not just predicting the future, but the main job of a prophet was to reveal how God saw the people. And back in that day in the nation of Israel, it usually wasn't good. And so they would try to silence that guy by beating him. And if they didn't, he didn't listen then. And most of the time, of course, he wouldn't because he had a message from God. They'd kill him. And so the owner says this, finally, I'll send my son. Now, who would do such a thing? This is where it kind of leaves the rails a little bit for the people. Who in the world would send his only son knowing or, or his son, knowing that they had beaten and killed the rest of the servants. Doesn't he know they'll probably do the same to him? Well, here's something about the Father in heaven. He cares about a relationship with us, enough to send his only son to us because this represents Jesus Christ. Verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. A prediction of what would happen at the end of the week. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? I mean, he, he's asking them. They don't get it yet. He's talking about them. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to someone, other tenants. 
who will give him the fruits of its season. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that builds, uh, uh, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, talking about himself. That was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It's going to be taken away from the nation of Israel in the sense of just being the nation of Israel. But now Israel joins with the Gentiles and forms something new, the church. So why is it that we're not experiencing the grace of God? Well, we want to be owners. We want to have the ownership of our own life. And until we realize that we're sinking in sin, sinking in the quicksand of life, we're never going to reach out for the rope. I mean, the vine drops and you just think, I don't need that. I'm just fine the way I am. And something is pulling the wool over our eyes. And the Bible tells us that God loves us, the truth of things. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 7, there's a lot of good stuff in that book of Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says something so great. It's probably one of the greatest things in the Old Testament. When he says to the nation of Israel, he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your, your nation great. Why? Not because you're the greatest among people or the largest among people. He said, I'm going to do it because I love you. I just love you. I love you because I love you. Can you imagine your spouse saying something, or your, one of your children saying that to you? Oh, Dad, I don't love you because you provide all the money or some of the money. I don't, I don't love you just because you go to a ball game with me and let me use the car. Mom, I don't love you just because you do this for me and, and run errands all over and drive me everywhere. You know? I don't love you, honey, just because you've got a pretty face. Um, honey, I don't love you. And you look at your husband because I love just big stomachs. You know? You know? Why do you love me? I love you because I love you. God loves you because he loves you. And he sent his son to die on the cross for you. How can, can you see it? Mark Rutland, who used to uh, pastor here in Orlando, then was a president of a college, had a sermon that I heard back when I was in Georgia, actually, called Trial of a Businessman. Fictitious story. A man sitting in his living room. Businessman. Very successful businessman. He's sitting in his living room, probably watching college football on a Saturday afternoon. Suddenly, there's a pain in his heart. And he grips his heart. And he's bending over in the chair. And he can't breathe. He begins to, to tremble. And he falls on the floor, yelling out in pain. His wife runs in and says, what's wrong? She sees he's having a heart attack. She yells out to her daughter, call 911, call 911. The man drifts off, and as it were, another world. And he finds himself in his business suit, sitting at a desk in a large, empty room. It's not a church. It looks like a church, but it's not really a church. And he begins to look around, and he sees a, a big table or a big, almost a throne, really, in front of him. And people for people, I, I'm, I'm in a courtroom. I'm in a courtroom. And suddenly, bursting through the doors, is a man on a mission. 
He walks down the aisle, very determined, puts his briefcase down on his desk, sitting across from the businessman. He looks at him. The businessman looks back, and he's never seen such evil. He's never seen such, he's never feared that much. He feels there's evil all around him. The hatred, the bitterness in this man's eyes. Then the crowd begins to fill in suddenly. And somebody says, all rise. And he looks up as he stands up. And he sees one like a God coming through the doors with angels around him. Suddenly he realizes, I'm at the judgment of God. I'm at the, I'm at, what am I doing here? I'm a good guy. I'm good. I'm basically a good human being. The prosecutor stands up and he says, uh, Your Honor, I'll be prosecuting this man today and I'll be seeking the death penalty. Based upon your law, he is cursed by the law, and I will be seeking the death penalty for all he's done. And, you, and this businessman looks at him and thinks, wow, he, I'm in the wrong place. This can't be me. And the prosecutor says, I want to call my first witness. And this little young man walks up, you know, teenager, sits down in the witness chair. And he begins to testify how, and he points to this businessman, he says, he bullied me all during elementary school and all during middle school. And when he could find me in high school, he made my life miserable. He says, your honor, I command, I demand the death penalty for cursed is the one who does this and harms and as it were murders a young man in his heart. I'm gonna seek the death penalty for murder, for rape, for sensuality. I'm going to seek the death penalty for thievery. In this man's business dealings, he calls another person to the stand. I want to call Mary Ann Wilson, he says. And he says, oh, Mary Ann, I, I remember her. <laughs> I took her to the prom. Oh, man, I took her to the prom. She takes the witness stand, and he didn't recognize her at all. Straggly hair, thin, poor-looking. Frail, aged. And she said, I went to the prom with this man. He took advantage of me because he said he loved me and I loved him. But the last time I remember seeing him, he dropped me off at the abortion clinic and I never saw laid eyes on him again. And after that, it was one, I couldn't, I couldn't take my guilt. It was one man after another, one drug after another, and finally I died in a back alley. This man took my life. Suddenly, you hear from the crowd, cursing, 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 cursing. He said, what's, what's going on here? Nobody's for me. I mean, I, I need some help here. And the prosecuting attorney says, I want to call his mother to the stand. He says, oh, last, somebody that's going to help me. She takes the stand, and she says, for seven and a half years, my son's father laid up in a nursing home as an invalid. And the times he came by, the one or two times he came by, brought a box of chocolates, didn't have time to even sit down with him and talk to him. My husband died with a broken heart because his own son didn't love him. He heard from the crowd, cursing, cursing, cursing. And he begins to look around. He says, these, wait a minute, these people aren't human. 
They look like they have pig faces. It looks like there's demons out there. I mean, I, I need some help. I need, your honor, I need an attorney. I, that's when I, I need an attorney. And a man places his hand on his shoulder. And he says, your honor, I'll be his attorney. He says, what, he looks over, he says, what should I do? What should I do? He says, plead guilty. Yeah, I can't do that. No way. They're going to kill me. Don't you understand that? They're going to do something. Say something. Make an objection. Plead guilty. So he stands up and he says, Lord, your honor, I, I, plead, I plead guilty. Suddenly it, it just overwhelms him with his guilt. And he begins to cry and he says, Lord, I am guilty. Your honor, I, I've done all these things that these people are saying and more. And he started telling story after story of stealing this and looking at the playboys and, and, and doing this with drugs and, and doing this over here against someone and, and swindling people in, in a business deal. God, I've done, Lord, I've done all of it. And he sits down at his, at his desk, head in his hands, crying, crying and crying more. And the prosecuting attorney says, I demand the death penalty. It's God, Lord, it's your book. It's your law, not my law. It's your law, and I demand the death penalty. And suddenly the attorney says, for the young man says, your honor, I'd like to make a deal. He says, fine, what's your deal? He said, if you let this man live, I'll take his curse for him. And the judge turns to the prosecuting attorney and says, well, how do you feel about this? How do I feel, he thinks. This is the one I've been looking for. I've been wanting. I wanted to kill him. I've been wanting to get rid of him for centuries. I don't care about this little infinitesimal man who's over here pleading for his life. I want him, your honor. I'll take the deal. Suddenly, the demons from the crowd, cursing, cursing, and it turns into crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And suddenly, like a glimpse, the man looks up, and just for a split second, he's beneath the cross in Jerusalem, and he sees his attorney dying between two other people. Suddenly, he feels pain in his chest, almost to the point of knocking him down. He finds himself waking up on the floor of his home and a paramedic beating, beating, and beating on his chest. <gasps> he comes back to life and he sits up, rescued by the grace of God. Another chance to live according to God's grace. What about you today? Just a fictitious story. Probably won't happen exactly like that at all. But what if it did? You see, there's truth and there's grace, and they balance. But the first thing we have to understand is the need for grace, and that's the truth. The truth is we are sinking deeper and deeper and deeper in what the Bible calls the miry clay. And the only one that can save us from the curse of the law is Jesus Christ. Our returning, the Bible says, who took our place. 
Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.